Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited today to have a meeting of the Cheryls. I have Cheryl Cohen here from Arthritis Consumer Experts in Canada. Welcome. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with my namesake. Yeah, and we both even spelled the same way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and can we just start by giving the audience a quick introduction to you? Like, where do you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? You bet. So um, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So not far from you, uh, Ms. Crow. And um, my relationship with arthritis is that I have it. Uh, I've had rheumatoid arthritis now for 33 years. Um, consider myself and call myself a survivor uh, because I think eventually that's what you do over your life with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, where I'm situated and and who I hang out with in my days, rheumatoid arthritis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because I used to try to separate like my arthritis from the rest of my like professional life. Yeah. And then I joked that then I went, once I decided to not separate them anymore, I went all in and I'm literally started a you know an organization called Arthritis Life. <laughs> like, yeah. Arthritis well, is my you know, life. our <laughs> histories are very parallel. More we <laughs> share more than just our name, uh, yeah. to be sure. Yeah, but you're you're 13 years ahead of me in terms of the having our I've had it for 20 years now. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really curious, um, especially like you have lived through a time period with rheumatoid arthritis that has seen so many changes in the available yeah. treatments. Like whatever you feel comfortable sharing, I would love to hear your treatment. Journey. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So um, I think that's a really good point, especially for your audience, that when you meet people in our community, Cheryl, uh, we all come from different walks of life, different uh, social situations, different cultural contexts and racial contexts. And for me, um, 
when I was first diagnosed 33 years ago, I am so embarrassed to say this, the internet was just getting going. So, you know, what happens to patients today is very foreign to me when I was diagnosed. To get information, you couldn't just sit down at your laptop or your, or your personal digital device and uh, go Google something. You actually had to get on the bus, get on the sidewalk, get in your car and try to go to libraries and find information. And you might in a, in a text that you found, see one line about rheumatoid arthritis in the general topic of arthritis. So that was how I first encountered the disease and tried to learn about my disease. And you're right, the treatment spectrum has completely changed. Um, I first started on gold. Well, the first year I denied treatment. I tried to cure myself with every known crazy thing on the planet. Um, and obviously I failed miserably. And at the end of my first year, I literally was wheelchair bound. I had very aggressive onset uh, disease. I was had th sort of 36 active and swollen joints in 30 days. Like literally oh, I was wow. hit by a train called rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, um, yeah. and, and, uh, and then after that year, I just sat down with, with my rheumatologist at the time, bless her heart, never gave up on me. She just kept seeing me every month and saying, Cheryl, there are options, not many, mind you. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a big believer in gold. So I started on gold. And can you um, explain how, how is gold delivered to your yeah, body? It's delivered in a big needle. Um, yeah. gold was actually, and it's truly it's gold salts. And uh, so that, and, and, and there are still some practitioners, particularly in, in Europe that still use it mm. very slow onset though. So by the time it actually gets to its full efficacy, Cheryl, you're done. Like you, your joints are already burnt, yeah. sort of burned up. Um, it's delivered by a needle. You draw it up yourself. The needle is not like these small gauge needles of today. Mm. They're big, fat, <laughs> needles wow. and to try to and you had to inject the the gold salt suspended usually in oil uh like an oil solution and so it was like a kind of a i don't want to say gooey but it was not very viscose this material and uh putting it in hurt it took almost a minute to depress the syringe compared to today's self-injectables which take you know no time at all so that's where I started, Cheryl. Then they added methotrexate and I got to the full dose of that. And, and so my first 10 years were with the traditional conventional synthetic DMARDs. And I went through them all, uh, hydroxychloroquine, sulfazalazine, methotrexate in combination, gold, NSAIDs, you name it. I was on them, all of them, all at once sometimes. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, we, uh, we began to see the arrival of biologics. And that changed people like us, uh, changed people's lives, including my own. So today, 33 years later, flash forward, I've been on a biologic now for almost 20 years in combination with methotrexate. Um, mm -hmm. I've been on two different biologics, both self-injectables. Oh, no, one by IV and now one that's uh, self-injecting and um, have had, you know, great, great success. 
Wow. And that's, I just think it's so, so important for the people who are hesitant about medication to access as many stories as as possible, particularly with people from people like you who initially were against Western medicine. Yeah. Like, I would love to explore that a little bit. Like, what do you remember? What was it? Was it a, what was it that drove that decision to not, even though I mean, gold wasn't that great, but let's just assume that was the best treatment available was gold and methotrexate. It was at the time, yeah. yeah. And, and methotrexate, you know, the, this 2019 article from the um, Annals of Internal Medicine or however you pronounce yes. that, yeah. said, you know, 50% of patients still actually do well on methotrexate monotherapy. Which it's I'm, done well, yeah. Methotrexate is, is an incredible medication in our yeah, disease it, setting. I feel like people must think I'm getting a kickback from methotrexate because I, I talk about how well it works all the time. <laughs> but I'm the same. I'm the same way, kiddo. Um, <laughs> I do a lot, probably like you. I talk to people like us every day, yeah, and yeah. I get sent a lot of patients from rheumatologists across Canada who are refusing to go on methotrexate or are afraid of it. Yeah. And once I sit down with them and I tell them, well, I've been on it for 23 years. Uh, it's actually the most studied drug we have in, yeah. in rheumatoid arthritis and, and in a lot of different autoimmune diseases. It's the most studied drug because it's the comparator drug in all of the clinical trials. So we know the most about methotrexate. It's the safest drug we have actually yeah. of them all when used in appropriate doses. And when you go and get your regular blood monitoring tests, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a big, uh, a big fan as well. Neither of us are getting kickbacks, by the no, way. We are not um, just for full disclosure, but it's but a what, genericized drug and it's cheap and it's just great. And, the, and so when you think back to your mindset, when yeah. you initially denied it, what was it that you, were you scared of the side effects or were you? Yeah. Tell, no, tell me about that. It actually had nothing to do with the drugs. Interestingly enough. Oh, okay. Two things where I live geography, the West coast is a hotbed of alternative therapy. Yeah. Use of, you know from research that use of alternative therapies on the West Coast is much higher than anywhere else across the country. Um, so that's one. I live in a city where there's a naturopathic clinic or homeopathic clinic or a natural pharmacy on almost every street corner, Cheryl. So context is everything and geography can be very influential because that's the societal view yeah. Around how you get better. So, you know, I go to a cocktail party or to, you know, see my friends at their houses and they're saying, oh, you should try echinacea. You should try acupuncture. So the peer, so that's the other thing. Factor number two, peer pressure, peer mm-hmm. influence. So everyone around me in my group, my close friends were into naturopathy, felt that they were, mm-hmm. well, you know what? I, I, nothing against that. Then, but they didn't have rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. They weren't sitting in a wheelchair incapacitated by a horrific onset of inflammatory autoimmune arthritis. I was. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know, I didn't have the health literacy at the time, Cheryl, to discern between the two as obvious as it seems. It's not obvious when you're overwhelmed by a diagnosis. No. And I, I really, I mean, even though in, in my circles, I think there was a lot of you know, when I got diagnosed in 2003, um, you know, I had a lot of friends whose parents were doctors and stuff like that from where I grew up. And there's still this societal message that I think a lot of people get that natural is better. 
I want to oh. do it naturally. I want to avoid, uh, you know, unnecessary potential. How many times have you been in a conversation with your friends at a barbecue or out on, you know, taking a walk and uh, they ask you how you're doing You say, fine, I'm having some issues with this medication. And they say to you indignantly, oh, I won't even take yeah. a, a acetaminophen for my headache. Uh, so Humble you're brags. absolutely right. Society completely sends people with chronic disease messages that what we're doing isn't what everyone else is doing. Do you know what right. I mean? So there, yeah. it just puts pressure on people. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step -step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group, where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through. People who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. It really, and I think that's going on a little tangent, but, um, you know, the social, you said social context, which I yeah. love thinking about and the social context now exists, not just geographically, but in your social media landscape, you know, what's your community in, in social media. And the, I think my, my biggest fear with the social media aspect of health management and patients connected to each other is when there's these silos of echo chambers of, well, I did natural and it worked. And, I, and again, we, you and I both understand the, the literature and the evidence. I, if, if the evidence was flipped, if it was 95% of people were able to manage their rheumatoid arthritis 
through natural methods and not pharmaceuticals and 5% weren't, weren't like, if that changed tomorrow, I would advocate for it, but I'm We'd be talking about it. That would be the yeah. central focus of this issue of this episode. Yeah. yeah. But it's not, it's that the odds are not in your favor and you'll always find anecdotes. It doesn't mean that you, if that's important to you, if that's a personal or cultural value to try to avoid Western medicine, you have the right to make that decision, but it should be an informed decision. And I think that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, Cheryl. And I think there's uh, people need to understand the distinct differences between alternative therapy approaches mm. and complementary. Okay. So how, how would you find the So alternative means you're not, you're going to put up a firewall between what is traditionally evidence-based medicine and this other approach you're going to try. So you're going to forsake what is known in the evidence. You're not going to follow that. And you're going to try something alternative. Whereas complementary is moving those two closer together and understanding what might be possible in the complementary world and how it works without the exclusion, right, of mm. traditional evidence-based medicine. So that's where I, as a person living with the disease and the organization that I work for, that's where we land. How do we blend these, you know, more, uh, uh, I, I want to say natural approaches, because there's mm. lots of things that are natural. Exercise is natural. Thumbs exactly. up. Let's Meditation. do it. Meditation. Meditation. You know, mindfulness. Sleep. Exactly. Sleep, the forgotten lifestyle factor. So those are the complementary therapies that we want, that have evidence that we want to practice along with pharmacological science, right? Yes. And I, yeah. I love that you're bringing this up because it just came up in an episode I haven't published yet, but with Dr. Stephanie Monaz yeah. on the yoga, you know, yoga with arthritis expert. Yeah. And she made that distinction too. And I have to, I'm admitting to anyone who listens to this podcast or follows me, I don't think I've been very conscientious when I've, I think I've used those, that word alternative, um, sometimes to describe complementary methods accidentally. So I apologize if I've, Oh, but, no but, yeah. but I do think for the, for the person who's going out to consume mm-hmm. these services, it's a really important point because it's, you spend money out of your own pocket for them usually. Yeah. yeah. And often if you're, trying something and then you're going to exclude something else it's it's likely because you can't afford both yeah well if you can't afford both i'm going to suggest to you that you should spend your money on something proved that's what i'm my message yeah Yeah. and that's again where context is everything like i will tell you know i've said look if you have um unlimited or very a large amount of time money and available resources in your, your boots. Why not? Yeah. Take yeah. the meds and do acupuncture and do yoga and massage and go see a nutritionist and a naturopath and the supplements and do everything. If, as long as it's like, you know, not proven to be harmful, right. um, but, but most people are not in that enviable position to have. I, I have seen in my work with pediatrics previously with developmental disabilities, this come, this is not just unique to arthritis. This comes no. up with every condition, whether we're talking about you know, autism, cerebral palsy, you know, anything like that. Um, there's, there's those issues too of, um, yeah. but I'm curious, cause you, you were talking earlier that you, you are in the position to kind of, I guess, maybe consult or um, coach like newly diagnosed, the, the doctors will send the newly diagnosed patients who are hesitant about medications to you. This is just a personal, this is just such an interesting um, area for me, because I didn't know how many people were hesitant about starting again, Western medicine as a both and alongside complementary 
therapies um, or hesitant from a standpoint of I am hell bent on not taking, you know, medication. I'm only going to pursue alternative. Um, but I'm, I think just from a health promotion standpoint, I find it really, you know, and it goes along with the vaccine hesitancy conversations that have been talked about. Um, but what are some of the methods that you found that have helped kind of change people's minds or open their minds to the medications? Yeah, so um, I'm going to say the most fundamental shift people make from not wanting them to considering taking them has actually nothing to do with the medicine, Cheryl. It's about acceptance that there is a need for an intervention. Wow. It's about overcoming denial that you need something. Yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It it really, because when you do that, it is, it is really about looking in the mirror and saying, okay, this is what I have. Mm -hmm. This is going to be part of my future, Mm -hmm. short, medium and, and, and long term. And so I think that is where the conversations I have with my peers who are recommended to have a chat with me that's where we start we don't even talk about the medicine Mm. we talk about the reality of receiving the diagnosis and what it means to them and it's a conversation Cheryl that you know well we don't have the time and luxury to have that more in-depth or heartfelt conversation with our care providers either they don't have the time they don't have the interpersonal skills, which is often the case. Yeah, I know. We're looking at each other like, <laughs> yeah. um, or, or, or simply that they don't have time, right? Uh, so, and doctors don't often like to get too close to their patients. So they'd rather have a nurse practitioner speak to the patient about this. At the end of the day, it's just giving people the space in conversation to open their heart and to say, I'm scared, you know, what less mm-hmm. about what I've just heard from this practitioner, from this healthcare professional. So the, the, the denial or the unwillingness to take a medication like methotrexate is yes, it's partly what they go home immediately and Google, and then they read that it's, you know, a cancer drug and yada, yada, yada. It, it's, it's really that they just don't want to accept they have to take something that yeah. they need to do something. Uh, you know, and, yeah, that and so we work up. through that. We, we work through that, Cheryl, and it doesn't take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that, that, that I share with people is that I felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. I felt, you know, I'm not the person who seemingly is A-OK with their disease and takes a lot of different medications. And I didn't start like this. I started mm-hmm. where they started. We all do. And so sharing with them that I had a similar response, no way, Jose, like I'm not taking that stuff. I'm a, I'm an ex jock. I can overcome this by, you know, thinking it off, thinking it out of my body. So I think that was a big, those are two really big pieces, giving people the space to share their fear and and to Mm -hmm. actually be open that they're in denial um, and then telling them of my own experience and how I overcame it and then letting them go away and make a decision on their own. 
you know? Yeah. And what I would have to say, uh, the number of emails that I've gotten over the time I've spent helping ACE and, and working at ACE and prior to that volunteering with the Arthritis Society, Cheryl, I've got a pretty good, I've got a pretty good success rate at counseling That's- people through that. And when you say ACE, it stands for arthritis consumer, consumer expert. expert. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, just, no, I'm always on the patrol for, um, yeah, for acronym, acronyms. Yeah. There's so many, but no, I love that. And I think that my, my prediction was that you were going to talk about the personal storytelling and say that, you know, people need to know that it's normal to have this hesitancy. Um, but these maybe other reasons, but I love that you talked about, it's not, it's actually about addressing the underlying denial and lack of acceptance. Yeah. So I can tell my story. But if we don't start first with creating that safe, open space for people to say why they don't mm-hmm. want to take it, you, it's a non-conversation. It's yeah. just me lecturing them. They already had a lecture at the rheumatology office. They right. don't need another right. lecture. They need space to say why they don't want to do it. Right. Well, and yeah, and it's in my personal story, I actually was very gung-ho about the medication because it gave me hope. And I had, I was very lucky. I think my doctor was maybe two years out of med school, out of her residency. She's very young, hip, very sweet. She's the same doctor I have now. I feel like I have a unicorn, you know, she hasn't (laughs) left. Although I did just, of course, get an email from insurance saying that we're no longer going to provide the clinic that she works at. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll just do the private pay and then get it first, whatever, at a network rate. But point being, She's amazing. But also I think my mom growing up, I think it's also the family context, even though in Seattle, we have tons of alternative protection practitioners. My mom was very, very, and my dad too, are very practical and very much like, yeah, we take the antibiotics. If you need them, you take, you know, you go to the doctor. Like it wasn't like there was a pressure from, cause I know a lot of people get pressure from their parents, especially young people getting diagnosed. The parents are like, oh no, you don't want to take these scary meds. My mom, but at that being said, my mom did say that, you know, she, um, she told, asked the doctor, cause I got diagnosed be- before my senior year of college. I was a, between junior and senior year. I had been playing soccer, but then I had been deteriorating. I had severe rheumatoid cachexia. I lost 25 pounds on a 130 pound frame. So I was just, I felt, I was sure I was thinking I had cancer. Of course, yeah. I didn't know what it was. And then they were like, you're a hypochondriac anyway. But, um, <laughs> she told them that, you know, well, th- this sounds like a big thing with ordeal with the, with the refrigerated medicines with Enbrel, they were going to put me on Enbrel. Yeah. And, um, and she was like, can we just wait a year when she gets back to Seattle? Cause I was in school in New York. So she's like, she has to find a rheumatologist in New York and get the medicines. And she has to get a little fridge for her dorm. Like, Oh, this sounds like a lot of work. And they were like, she it said exactly like what happened to you. She said she could be in a wheelchair in a year. Like yeah. you don't have a year. You yeah. need to, and that's kind of what sealed the deal for us. So but, um, but you're, I think it's totally the norm. I don't, I haven't talked to too many other people who have been just gung ho from the beginning about the medications. It doesn't mean. Yeah. I mean, who, nobody wants, let's face it. Nobody wants to take medications. See, see, okay. People, a lot of people, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of people said to me, this is what's interesting. I have an anxiety disorder and I have no, I think in my position, having a medication decreases my anxiety because it gives me something I can control. Yep. I'm taking this medicine and every single time I open this container, I know something's helping my body. So that's my value. But no, you're right. Like 95%. But, but, it, but if you know. could wave a magic wand, Cheryl, today, it would be that you wouldn't, I'm going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb here and yeah. guess that you didn't have rheumatoid arthritis. You could wave it away. 
Oh yeah. Then and I wouldn't you didn't have to, have to take medications, right? Right. Right. Like, so that's my natural. life would be easier. Yeah. Life would yeah. be a lot easier. And, and, you know, I, I mean, we, we both found meaning and purpose to our lives and are happy and, and hopefully, you know, well-adjusted, um, yeah. <laughs> but we're totally lot- normal, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the bottom line is if you could do without those two things, you, you choose that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. If I would have, but it's like, I, I guess it's, it's totally like a semantic thing. It's like, but I know that that's not the case. Like, yeah, that's, that's right. That's something I tell people. It's like, you don't, it's like the natural is door has closed. You know, your body is doing something unnatural. That's kind of the framework I come from. My body has decided to do something yeah. unnatural. So the natural, you can't necessarily, you got to kind of fight fire with fire. That's actually not totally true, right? Some people are able to, you know, just because it's unnatural that your body's fighting itself doesn't yeah, mean yeah. That you have to use an unnatural method. But it is kind of like, I do think that I had a weird level of acceptance of it from the beginning. I think in my case, and I'm sorry to keep going on mine, but I had, I don't know if you had been experienced like medical gaslighting at all, but I had been told so many times that I was just anxious and I wasn't sick that when I got the valid, that diagnosis gave me the validity to say, ha, you were wrong. You all said that I was just anxious. I knew there was something happening in my body. And the fact that you're like telling me that there's a medication for it, it actually gives me legitimacy to prove that I wasn't wrong. Absolutely. I think, um, I think validation is a really important part of one's disease journey um, and, and does help support you in making, considering, and then making decisions. There's no question uh, about that. I, I had, um, you know, my experience was a a bit different, um, but like you, my family doctor was just out, uh, was just basically out of med school So she was fresh of all the things she learned in med school that, you know, the sad truth of it is uh, family doctors only receive about 17 hours of training on musculoskeletal diseases in their entire time in medical school. Yet it is the number one reason someone over the ages of 50, 55 sees a family doctor, Mm -hmm. right? So the bulk of their clientele, the bulk of the people walking across the transom are people who have an MSK or a musculoskeletal complaint. Anyway, uh, she, when I came in as a 27 year old woman, 26, and I present, and I was a former high performance athlete and I had a pain in the ball of my foot and an inexplicably swollen index finger. (gasps) That was my one. I called it my sprained finger. I only had one finger. It looked like someone came into my bedroom at night, took my own finger and put a bratwurst sausage on the end. It was swollen Mm. from the base to the tip. And I, so the pain in the ball of my foot, I kind of explained away due to athletics, but the finger thing was not, I couldn't come up with a reason for it. Mm -hmm. That's what drove me to see her. And, and I'm so fortunate because she, uh, ended up diagnosing me or suspecting it in the very first visit, which is unheard of, right? Normally mm. people really struggle to get a diagnosis. She sent me off for blood work, blood work. I had titers that were just out of the hemisphere. You know, they, yeah. I had rheumatoid factor positive tests in the back in the day, they didn't measure CRP. They measured ESR, which mm-hmm. is a less sensitive measure for inflammation in the blood but mine was skyrocketing. Mm. And so, and then I got referred to a rheumatologist like within a week, Cheryl. So I had a very unusual 
early start to my journey um, in that it was it was recognized early. But then when I got to rheumatologist, I denied the treatment for a year. Yeah, so, but it, it's not like today, if you had done that today, it would have been a bigger or sorry, this is like, this is, doesn't even matter really. But like, if you, if you had gotten diagnosed today and then took a year with all these nine possible biologics and didn't take one, then it, it, you might feel more in the future, um, regret or guilt because you oh, there's, have, there's no question. There's no question yeah. about it, but those could have you put know, you into remission long, but it's know. all contextual, right? It's yeah. all, it, it, you have to do what you have to do at any point in time in history. If, the plow is the best way with a horse, the best way to till the you know, the ground, that's how you do it. So right. I was back in the plow and horse days. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I, I don't live with regret. Right. I just, when I tell my story, I like to really focus on, you know, helping people understand that sitting still and taking it in is such an important part in those early days mm -hmm. to really, truly understand the set of choices in front of you and actually how life affirming or changing not for the better those decisions that you take can be. Yeah. I think that's where we are today, Cheryl, with science. It's, it really is. I mean, people diagnosed today don't have to live the last 20 years that you did or, or that mm -hmm, I did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have an opportunity to basically, if they respond to medication and they do all the other non-medication related things that support us in our journey, can make RA have almost nil impact in their life. Right. That's Beyond how far science has come. Yeah. 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 Ab absolutely. And I, I, in terms of, I know people are going to be thinking about your own journey yeah, um, and wondering. So after one year, because th then we'll talk more about uh, the other things we had, to yeah. talk about, but after one year you were using a wheelchair, you know, you were at that point of mobile where it really severely affected you 36 active slow joints. Then you went on the gold and methotrexate, but there's this saying, you know, that joint damage is, is irreversible, yeah. right? So we're, um, so, but now you've responded well to the biologics. So I'm like, what was that transition like? Does that make sense? Or like, what, and what yeah, is it? No, like, that's it? A, yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, you know, some people in the audience may know this, some may not, but back in the day when I was first diagnosed, there's a measurement scale that clinicians use and that, that drug manufacturers have to meet thresholds of, Right you have to meet an ACR 20. That means that the drug will give you back. If you, if I, my life was a hundred percent prior to getting diagnosed, then I got diagnosed. My life went down to almost zero. I had literally Cheryl, almost nil quality of life. And then I started medication. I got 20% of my life back. That was state of the art back then of a hundred percent of my life. I got wow. 20 back. And then I added, you know, then we added methotrexate. Then I tried tip, triple, what they call triple DMARD therapy. Yeah. So disease modifying any rheumatic drugs. And that got me to about 30, which was amazing back then, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I could, you know, resume sort of walking. I could start to hike again. I was a former a volleyball player. So no, oh, okay. could never do that again. 
I started to play a little bit of tennis again, which was sort of my new recreational sport. Um, I couldn't really run anymore. Um, so really the things that I used to love about my body and my body's ability, I got about 30% of that back. Then biologics came around and I took one. And I, as I mentioned, my first one was uh, it, it uh, was an infused product. So by IV. Mm-hmm. And by that time I had founded ACE arthritis consumer yeah. experts. And I was going to the ACR meeting and I remember getting my first infusion it was the day before I went to the ACR meeting in new Orleans. I oh, remember wow. the city wow. and my husband, ex-husband now still love him dearly. Um, mm-hmm. and we're great friends and colleagues. So he's a rheumatologist, believe it or not. I know. And we were walking down the next day. We were walking down the long corridor. You know how the meetings of these huge long walks between. It's the most unfriendly thing for people with RA in the world. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we're walking along and I said, hey, check this out. And I handed him my hand and he laced his fingers with mine for the first time in our life together. Wow. It still brings tears to my eyes. Uh, That is how profound the onset was, even for someone with long, relatively long standing disease. Yeah. That is the, the, I can't stand this term, but game changer. Oh, biologics and now targeted small molecules are equally effective. So we now have something by pill, something by injection, and something by IV that help you hold your husband's hand. Like, I know, I know it's such a, it just makes me feel so filled with promise for the, for people being diagnosed today. They don't have to go through that, Cheryl. No. And I mean, unfortunately, some of them still do. They'll do. I agree. No, I'm only just trying to remember that word validation from earlier. I know some people feel like everyone keeps saying that like RA is all figured out, but like, I'm not responding. No, I get it. But you're right, the majority, the statistically, the majority do respond to the current medications. Yeah. Unfortunately, some have difficult to treat RA. I love that that's like a medical phrase. I know. Sad, but it is at least. Yeah. So so I went to just to go back and and kind of put the bookend on your question. I went from an ACR 20, 30 Mm -hmm. to an ACR 70, 75, before Mm the ACR 70 was even talked about. I got to that level. So your quality of life was 70 to 75% of what you previously had. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's phenomenal. That's exactly what, and that's, that I love that. I'm sorry, as an OT, it just makes, it does give me shivers, like make thinking about being able to hold, that's what people want and is be able to hold their husband's hand or for the young moms that get diagnosed after having a baby, which is a really common Yep. statistically time for an autoimmune disease to flare up for the first time. You know, I want to be able to pick up my baby. Like I want to be able to nurse my baby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There were so many ways that it's not just about, I want my pain to be less than a five on a scale of one to 10. It's like, we want to be able to function, you know? Yeah, And you know, this is a bit tangential, but not, I hope you'll indulge me just for one Please. minute. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the holding of hands it's comments, it's lived experience like that, Cheryl, that as patient partners in research bring to the table that is absolutely invaluable. 
A researcher can't do that unless, of course, they have RA and are willing to disclose and share that in their work. Mm-hmm. But that is the value of patient participation in research. And it's as meaningful as a methodology, in my opinion, in conducting the science. It is the same. It brings the same meaning to the drug review process. So, you know, the FDA, when you sit and and, and the FDA considers whether this drug uh, adds value, well, what is the value of being able to hold your husband's hand? I would say it's invaluable to me. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's whenever we're looking at outcome measures, it's like, okay, well, certain things might not have moved the needle on the thing that you decided to define as an outcome measure, but did it move the needle on what the patient, that's why I love qualitative research because it's like, you know, what actually matters to people is the stuff that's, that's the hardest to measure, you know, and and, and I'll preach in the choir, but yeah, you mentioned, you know, yeah, patient partners, you're doing so much with ACE and just all your advocacy. I don't even, we would have to have like 17 episodes (laughs) to even like touch it. But, um, but yeah, like I, there are so many people with lived experience of rheumatoid arthritis who just get that fire in their belly to like address some of the systemic issues that we see out there. And so I just would love to hear like your or superhero origin story for uh, arthritis consumer experts, which yeah, we'll refer to as ACE or however you want yeah, to refer to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think probably uh, you and I are, some of our DNA is shared. Yeah. Um, our genetic <laughs> material, because um, I think, when I started, when I founded ACE, it was really, I was doing so much volunteer work that my volunteer work was almost consuming. I was running a communications consultancy firm, my own at the time. We were you know, very successful. We had some big clients, but I found myself spending more and more of my time doing volunteer work. I was on the board of the Arthritis Society here in, in Canada. And when I looked around, the landscape, Cheryl, I couldn't see anybody like me looking back at me. I was, I found myself the only person with rheumatoid arthritis in a room of 200 people. And I just thought to myself, well, one, that's going to start to really eat away at me. You can't give all the time and not have it and not pay a price for it, right? Physically and mentally and emotionally. And so I thought, well, I, and I don't want to hear my own voice all the time. I want my voice to be blended with a beautiful melange of voices. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, there's got to be more people out there with rheumatoid arthritis in Canada than just me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I tell you what, I'm just going to start an organization that's by, for, and with people with arthritis and see who comes to the party. See who answers emails, see who comes into a hotel meeting room to learn about the disease. So I started running workshops across the country with a leading community rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. And because I was volunteering with a national research organization at the time, I had good contacts. I had a good network of leading rheumatologists who really wanted to hear what people like me were saying. So they were curious. They wanted to see, well, could we co-deliver an educational session that 
provided standardized information about rheumatoid arthritis that was leading edge across the country? Mm-hmm. And the answer was yes, we could. And we started changing and saving lives one at a time, running workshops across the country. And then I added a person. Then I added another person. Yeah. And it's, and a, it's now, a nonprofit organization. It is. We are a not-for-profit. Uh, we do not publicly fundraise. People do give to us. We have a blend of grants from government and from uh, private sector uh, companies, such as the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. We take unrestricted grants. They go into one pot. Mm. Our board, our staff determines what we do with the funds. Uh, We're fully accountable. We're fully transparent. We disclose in all of the uh, materials and presentations that we make. Um, And it's a very... It's a very cool place. It's a very cool world I live in where I get to do work that's super fulfilling to me personally. I learn every day. I'm in such awe of people like you and people that you and I encounter in our daily lives and the work that we do. Cheryl paid or volunteered. Um, and, and it's just amazing. So that's, that's where the, that's where the Wonder Woman shield came from. It came from a, just a, a a real dire need to connect with fellow people like me. That's right. that simple. And to start this learning journey together. And yeah, that's, that is what I love about, I mean, so much I love about your organization, but that you're really focused on, like, I'm looking, just reading from the website to make sure yeah. I'm saying this right, but, you know, providing free science-based information and education programs in both official languages, yes, which yes. is not something I tend to be as a blind spot for me. Sometimes, you know, I have um, friends who translate like Christina Montoya, the registered yeah. dietitian. She's been on here. She translates things. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. She translates we, have a, we're, we're, we have to disclose to the audience. We're key members of her fan club for sure. Yes. She's yeah. been on twice. I know to talk about nutrition and once for yeah. cannabis. Um, and yeah, I just think it's really such a, um, you know, there's a dearth of evidence-based information, even though it's like, it's weird. It's like you're, when you get diagnosed, like you said, now in 2022, you go to Google, there's, it's actually, there's a ton of information, but there's a lack of curation of that information. And that's exactly, I think what you do, Cheryl, that's what we try to do for sure. Um, and we, um, you know, in the maturation of our organization, as we grew, as we had got more members, you know, we have a member and subscribership of 50,000 across Canada. There's 60 million. Oh or 60, my yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Sorry. We're surprisingly <laughs> large. Um, but we, That's still, amazing. we still have this, I mean, our feet are on the ground because we are people living with a form of arthritis and, yeah. Yeah. and we, uh, because we're small, um, and grassroots, we're also nimble. And I think that's what yeah. people appreciate about our organization. So we partner, I think, very effectively with much larger publicly funded organizations such as research institutes. Uh, we work really well with the Arthritis Society. We think that our work is very complementary mm-hmm, to theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is that every person with arthritis could probably set up a little shop on the corner and never meet the information needs of all of the people who live with arthritis. Yeah. It's a daily uh, battle to get where you need to be when people need it. 
And so that's how we view the community. Um, and our bandwidth has grown, um, but it's all informed by people with arthritis through our survey program. So okay, we survey yeah. them three times a year. And like you, the qualitative research piece is always my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> we allow lots of room for people to write what they're experiencing, as well as answer the more quantitative kind of questions in the question set. Um, but the richness comes from the words of the mouths. Uh, of people with arthritis. So yeah, that's kind of where we started, how we operate, who we are. I'm so blessed to work with amazing people who support me in my own journey every day. And I hope vice versa. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, and that's one thing I'm, I mean, I have so many questions for you on like out of a personal interest, but um, you know, when you, a lot of people who listen to this podcast um, have chosen to work either like in a healthcare related field or in a nonprofit for arthritis, you know, or for related conditions. And I'm curious how, I know a lot of people don't like this phrase, like work-life balance, but when you, you know, when you are all day focusing on this kind of work in the arthritis sphere and you're living with rheumatoid arthritis, I'll just say from personal experience, I find things, um, I, I use a metaphor of breathing for whatever reason, but I expand and then I have to contract. Like I expand, I'm like, yeah. I want to do all these things. I'm excited, I'm excited. And then I have to contract and say, oh, it's too much. I've reached too much. Yeah. I'm, I need to think about something other than arthritis. Like how do you balance mentally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and this, the answer is, I think, applicable across any profession, any job, Um. I think first of all, to balance, you have to love what you do. You have to absolutely wanna eat it every day. And and that's what describes me in my work. I love what I do. I kind of am a server. If I were to be described, you know, I'm the person serving the food. I'm not taking the order. I'm not in the back cooking, I'm serving. Mm -hmm. And I love serving. I've always loved my volunteer life and I feel like I don't work. I feel like I volunteer. I have though, over the years, developed a rhythm to breathe, as you put it. Um, And which I love that word and I will use it probably further down your question set because you're gonna ask me what word I have. Um, there's a little, a preview, Yes, but uh, because I founded ACE and, and I'm still, although we are a team that drives out all of the programming, content creation, equity work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, if people still think it's me 24 seven, right. They think ACE is Cheryl 24 seven. Right. And, and I do work in the evening. I tend to do a lot of my counseling work. Mm-hmm. A lot of peer support work in the evenings because that's when people have time available because yeah. they're busy working during the day. Right. I just, I spend a lot of my time to balance through reframing exercises. Mm. So I, you know, sometimes you could think, well, that's taking my hour from seven to eight. I should be sitting down enjoying my dinner. And I, I, I reframe that it's, it's not work because I derive such benefit by making a human connection 
with someone else who may be struggling with the disease. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I am benefiting as well because I get to re-examine where I'm coming from and where I'm at in, in, in the, any given point in time. So that's probably one of it. But then the other part is there are times like following a conference like the ACR. Yeah. People expect us, you and myself and others who work in the community to be up all the time. Hmm. And I'm here to tell you, not all of my time is up. I have down times. I have down days. And, and a lot of times I kind of feel like I'm not allowed to show those, mm-hmm. and, you know, because people rely on me being up. They rely so when on you me. say up, you mean like positive energy and yes. positive. Yeah. Happy, okay. smiling, um, contributing. Yeah. Right. So if I sit quiet at a meeting, people usually ask me, are you okay? Right. Like, <laughs> no, hey, yeah. Uh, I get it. I have a big voice and I'm loud, uh, but I do have time where I have to sit. So then I just say to myself, the time when I really need to unplug Cheryl is after a big meeting like the ACR. Yeah. yeah. Because you're on all yeah. the time. Yeah. So my team understands uh, that at that week following, I'm going to be very quiet. Yeah. And they're going to have to take leadership in the work in progress meetings that we have every morning at 9 15. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to, you know, be the ones on the watch. I can't be on the watch. I'm not standing guard. Right. I'm going to be in the background. I'm going to be working, but I need to fill myself back up. And that's mm-hmm. how I do it, Cheryl. It's not science. It's, it's just simple. It's just simple boundary setting. And well, which is hard to do. It's, uh, it's hard, hard to, to do. do when you want to, when you want to say yes to everything and every opportunity start at a certain point, if you get enough visibility, every opportunity starts is, is good. You're like, yeah, I want to help with that. I want to help with that, but you have to, yeah, I've been really, I struggle with that, but I think it's the people pleasing part of me too. Yeah. You know, that wants, you know, and, and, and but you're right. Boundaries are a form of like self care. Right. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing is when people come to you, you know, I've been around in the community long enough that there's name recognition, what I call name recognition. And in the principles of equity, uh, I can't be at the table anymore. It's not right. Mm. Because when you look around, the table's white. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Right? So if we are going to be good allies to communities that are marginalized and face inequities every day in healthcare, we need to give shift our power. So I spend now and focus a lot on giving my own professional personal power to people of color, to people who are facing inequity. We spend a lot of time giving ACES platform up to indigenous peoples to say, here, here's the platform. What do you want to say? What's important for people to know about Indigenous people uh, on Turtle Island, which is what Indigenous people have always called their native land? Um, and how do we support you in that? So, so that's another way of boundary setting is, is not just for you, the person, but for you in the community greater, right? In yeah. the bigger community that is multicultural, multiracial, uh, and not equitable. Yeah. So, so that's another piece we need to start. Those of us who have name recognition 
need to start saying, oh, you need someone for that meeting? Here's the perfect person for you. Yeah, sharing the mic. I know I first- Sharing the microphone, which is what you're doing now, right? You do this in your own program. Right. I do. And I, but I, I can always do better too. We all can. Cheryl, it's a lifelong process, right? Yeah. 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 And I, um, I was just thinking about Jen. Do you know Jen Horajeff? Yes. Yes. Yeah. She, I was gonna say, she, you remind me of her too. She's, she was the first person who, who brought, or that really brought that to my attention about, you know, she's like at a certain point, when you also have developed, you mentioned, I love the phrase health literacy. You've developed yeah. a degree of health literacy over your years living with rheumatoid arthritis that, that then you no longer represent the average patient because the average patient hasn't, or the average newly diagnosed patient hasn't uh, developed that yet. And so their needs are different too. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, we don't become obviously different people. We become more informed people and yeah. It takes great discipline. If I'm ever asked a question about disease experience, I I always preface what I'm going to say by saying, this is not Cheryl Cohen organizational leader over here. I'm talking, so, because I've, I, I I am a person who lives with rheumatoid arthritis every second of every day. That hasn't changed regrettably. Right, Right. And I, I can remember the day by the moment hearing the diagnosis. I remember what the weather was like. I remember the time of my appointment. I remember the exact words my rheumatologist at the time spoke to me. So, you know, yes, we evolve as people working or volunteering at at senior levels or at higher levels, whatever you want to call it of, of the community, Cheryl. But I think if you have that discipline, you can always return to where you started from. And I, I can, I remember it as though it happened half an hour ago. Yeah, I know they, yes, I do remember it. I don't remember all the conversations, but I have snippets that come in and out that are very, very vivid, especially, I just remember the impression that for me, it was like a whiplash between like being in a position of trying to convince people to get to the root of this, that something's wrong. And then and getting then the news. All of yeah. a sudden it's like, I, I, I'm just, the, the, the thought that I remember going through my head is like, she's acting like this is a bad thing. She's because <laughs> I, my parents, again, talk about privilege. My parents had hired a concierge doctor because they were like, we need someone that actually is going to give a crap about this. Yeah. That is not just going to say she's anxious. They know me. They're like, there is no reason that Cheryl went from captain of the college soccer team, you know, running every day. Also, there's no, there wasn't something that nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so they're like, I mean, there was no history. There's a little bit of history of uh, anxiety, but nothing to the degree that would make, would be so severe what was happening to my body. Yeah. And so they hired this, we call them a designer doctor back then. It's like a concierge doctor and the con- even the concierge doctor. She, I brought in my little charts that I had tried to track my symptoms, track what I was eating, track this and that. She even said, you're hypervigilant, you're, you're worried, you're too worried, you're too worried. So she, she wasn't thinking that there was anything bigger going on. And then all of a sudden, when more than my one sprained finger was hurting, yeah. everything was hurting. Um, all my joints were hurting. I couldn't do anything with my hands. She's like, all of a sudden, she's like, oh, I think you have rheumatoid arthritis. And, and I was like, why are you acting like this is a bad thing? Like I have been begging someone to figure out what's going on, Yeah, but but it, the fact that I was so relieved of the diagnosis did get, was a form of, I believe the diagnosis, but it was a form of denial 
that it was serious because I was like, I don't care what it is. I care that you're telling me that you believe me that something's wrong and that there's medications for it. And that's giving me hope. You, you know, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. One, I, I do. Uh, and I'm just sitting here listening to you, Cheryl, and I'm thinking your story and getting somewhat ha- the, how exhausting it must have been to convince someone oh. something was wrong was beyond the pale. Well, right? no, you can't prove it. You can't, it's, you're in an impossible situation. Yeah. I knew in my gut, I knew my body, I knew there was something wrong. Yeah. And if you go to the doctor saying there's something wrong and th- I, mean, I will say it wasn't a normal presentation because it was only one joint initially for two years, it was only one joint. Um, and then I got, I did have gastroparesis. So I got that diagnosis of the dysautonomia. So they're like, well, maybe it's all related. Maybe her weight loss is related. Unintended yeah. weight loss was related to the stomach emptying issue, but that all got significantly better when I was treated for RA, which was really yeah. interesting. But, yeah. but anyway, yeah, the, it's an impossible situation because you're trying to convince someone that you're not quote unquote crazy, but you, the more that they don't believe you, the more quote unquote crazy you start feeling because my anxiety skyrocketed, the more that I realize it's like I've called the firefighters and they've come to the house it's on fire and the firefighters are like there's no fire yeah it's so important <coughs> sorry thank me. you for validating my story I, no 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 I, it's it's just so I hear this all the time Cheryl yeah so when do we stop that story is my is why I'm in this yeah how do we stop we go- how do we make sure your story is never told again and one way <coughs> excuse me that we can do that and this is really fundamental to work around bias, mm-hmm. right? Explicit or implicit bias. Practitioners in health, no matter who, what field they come from, often walk into the physical exam room with a bias. Yeah. They bring it in with them. They hold it in their daily lives. Then they add to it when they lay eyes on you. Right. And If every healthcare practitioner and every patient, if we were to see an exam room, this is the model, the perfect model that lives in my head. And there's a door on one side and a door on the other side. And each of us walks in with just this blank chalkboard called a brain area, a writing area, right? And we each walk into the room and the only thing that's written at the top of that blackboard is, What can I learn from this person today? What can I learn from this person today? Yeah. And we, and, and we then, I'm not saying we can eradicate it altogether using this tool, but if we can do that, we drop away a lot of bias. Had you not been faced with the bias you, you would have gotten to where you needed to be, which is a person with a diagnosis. Um, you would have been a person unhappy about the diagnosis two years earlier, not happy about the diagnosis. No, exactly. Yeah. It would have been a different picture. The context changes everything. But it it is, it is implicit and explicit bias in healthcare that really is problematic for patients and particularly patients who are not white. Right. Yes. And that's, that's what I try. I try to always mention 
I had every privilege available, yep. financial yep. privilege, white privilege, other yep. than I'm not, I wasn't male, but yeah. I'm female and females are more likely to have rheumatoid arthritis. So in that sense, I was representing the yeah. more typical, yep. but that being said, you know, the, yeah, the doctors are trained, you know, to say, when you hear hoof beats, think horses, not zebras, I will say <laughs> I try to be as, as open. I try to be as, um, well, first of all, I love the portrait you painted of people walking in. That is a beautiful. And I think it's just easy. Hey, I it's think, an easy I, visual. One, I think the other thing that I want, I will recognize that there, that, you know, I think objectively a 20 year old, you know, high performing person who you know, they look on the paper, they're like, oh, this is like a type A personality person. You know, she's going to a elite university. She's playing soccer. She's, you know, and then suddenly uh, is reporting unintended weight loss and, and heightened anxiety around that. Um, I, I mean, their first thought was eating disorder. Um, and, and that was hard about that for me was a, I think statistically, someone with one sprained finger and then this weight loss and this type A personality, maybe objectively, statistically, it is more likely that person yeah. maybe has in, maybe the parents, like that's what was tricky. The like the gastroenterology. So we presented to gastroenterology first because it was seemed like the stomach was the issue, the main issue. And this sprained finger was just an afterthought, but the gastroenterologist called my parents and they're like, I think she's playing you. She has an eating disorder and she's just She's playing you in the sense of, and I mean, it's horrif horrific to be not believed like that, but they do see that. Um, that is not a, an imaginary occurrence. There are people who, the parents notice that the kid, the kid has an eating disorder. Eating disorders are a completely, complete mental illness that deserves compassion and care and accurate diagnosis and recognition. But, you know, they like the parents notice the kids eating, losing weight and the kid doesn't want to tell the parents they have an eating disorder. So they're going along with it yeah. to say, oh yeah, maybe there's something that, but my parents, the thing is they know me. They, I unfortunately happened there. It, there is a family history in my extended family of eating disorders to confound things. I think that they had to, at some point in their mind, wonder she's out in New York. We don't see her every day now, maybe, okay. but so it's like, it's just complicated, you know, Yeah. but if the, the, the what I, I'm sorry, I'm like processing my story because you're a good listener, but, <laughs> That's okay. um, but, and then listeners who've listened to a lot of episodes have heard this before, but my little spiel to all medical students or is, and all practicing doctors is that there needs to be this, we need to have a reckoning with the difference between, we don't know what's wrong with you. And I know that nothing's wrong with you. Yeah. Those are two completely different frameworks and different conversations. And what I was told is there is nothing wrong with you more than you have gastroparesis and you're losing weight from that, but you know, you're, that's it. There's, yeah. there, there's, when initially it was nothing. And then when I finally at least got the gastroparesis diagnosis, it was like, okay, there's something objective. Like my stomach's not emptying. We don't know why we can't help you. Um, and and um, the only medicine available for you is something that you had to get from Canada because it's not FDA approved in the US. The whole thing was crazy. But point being, if a doctor could be trained to say, I understand, like if someone had said to me that the conversation that replays in my head, the, the imaginary ideal, like you said, you have an ideal model that the two people are walking into the conversation with the blank slate and open mind. My ideal model would be that a provider would have said to me, like, I, I have run the tests that I think would explain what's going on with you. And I don't know 
why you are feeling so off in your body. It does seem that what's happening is beyond dis- dysautonomia and gastroparesis, but I don't know what it is. And um, I, I'm here for you. I will, I, I can't help you anymore than I can right now, but I want you to keep checking in maybe once a month and we'll see like to give you this hope of like, there's something they can do versus I've checked what I can check and you're not sick. Like that's the impression I got. And I was like, oh, well then they did blood work that had more blood work. And they were like, well, you actually have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm like, so every single time you told me before that you ran all the tests you could run and nothing was wrong, you weren't even running every, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like they need to contend with the fact that absence of proof of a diagnosis is not proof of absence of a diagnosis. And that's not, that's something that lawyers understand. It's not something that doctors are taught to understand. Yeah. I think, um, really fundamental to what, um, you've experienced and so many have experienced Cheryl is the need in medical school, both in the time in medical training for family physicians, and then beyond that, uh, to become a specialty physician, such as a rheumatologist, a gastroenterologist, an endocrinologist, an oncologist. Um, and it's now starting to be taught, but not to the level it should be, is communication skills. Yeah. And in actual fact, had they come into this room that I built in our heads, <laughs> with love, compassion, yeah. curiosity, understanding, empathy, uh, justice, had they brought in some core human values that were top of mind, like they put those words on their chart when they walked into that room, and then they began to have a conversation with you based on those mm-hmm. fundamental principles. And then they layer on top their medical training, their expertise, their the clinical gestalt that forms from all of those things put together. You would not have experienced, I think, what you experienced, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think medicine, it doesn't start with the prescription pad. It yeah. starts with human beings. It starts mm-hmm. with the innate curiosity we have as humans to hear things from each other and then be able to walk on a path of healing together. Healing doesn't come with the script alone. Healing doesn't come with the diagnosis. Healing comes before all of that. You need all those special ingredients in the, in the, you know, mixing bowl to come out with the recipe that gives you your life back. Yeah. Oh, it's it's so fundamental communication and the art of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I, you know, I recognize that the systems are just compressing on doctors. They have less time, less time, less time. Um, you know, and you shouldn't have to hire a concierge doctor to get that like limited resource of time. Yeah. They have less time because they've had to schedule three meetings following the initial meeting where they provided the diagnosis Mm -hmm. to try to convince them to do what they want them to do. Had they spent a bit more time in that phase I've just described, which is where you actually are a good human being to another human being and you talk to each other, I'm going to argue, this is my back of the napkin theory. No, I like that. You're not going to have those three other visits. 
And they will have the time in the system. There won't be a compression of their time. They will have all the time they need to help that person because they've bothered to think of them as a whole person with a brain, with cultural, you know, norms and context, with uh, uh, racial uh, issues because of due to inequity, right? Mm -hmm. They, They would know all of that and care about it. And then they would work with the person to come to the diagnosis. So oh, that's, that's very true. You, yeah. Even with, let's say everyone had 60 minute appointments. If you didn't have, have that fundamental humanity, as you said, the base yeah. foundation, then you're just going to be having longer amount of time with somebody who's still not seeing you. Because they're going to fight you the whole way because you haven't bothered to ask them. Yeah. You haven't bothered mm-hmm. to know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's great being an allied, you know, being an OT, I'm not really working clinically in like a traditional OT sense right now, but working in the allied health fields, like OT, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech, or social work, well, they don't get enough time, but counseling or psychology, even getting these hour or 50 minute long appointments, you get to actually have time to get to know people, you know, and, um, and everything. So, but anyway, I'm just so grateful for all the time you've given, and I want to (laughs) be conscientious ish of time. <laughs> Obviously we've already gone over, but we already talked beforehand that we yeah, can exactly, go over but, exactly. Um, but yeah, let's get to the rapid fire. Okay. So interesting. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. So what are your best words of wisdom? You've, we've already touched on this, but you know, yeah, maybe uh, yet again, maybe uh, summarize your best words of wisdom for people newly diagnosed with RA. Sit down and breathe. Mm-hmm. and find ways of asking for help with what you're experiencing do oh, the wow. best you can it's really hard to ask for help in the so early hard. days but i would say sit down and breathe don't panic there's help there's support there's love there's knowledge there's expertise but sit down and breathe it's not the end of the world, but it feels like it right now. Yeah. Just sit down and breathe. And there's people out there who will help you. What, what I love about that is that I think that in rushing to find the fix or the solution of the cure, which is what most people's logical reaction is to the diagnosis, they don't, like you said, they don't give themselves any time to actually digest it. They're like, they oh, usually okay. rush to the wrong decision, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen it. We yeah. Listen to us. We're like the elders. <laughs> We're the elders of the room. I'm the old lady on the podcast. No, that's seriously what. Yeah, I feel like that way sometimes too. I mean, like you're you're young. I'm like I'm 41 now, so yeah. I'm not as young. But yeah, okay. And do you have a favorite arthritis gadget or tool in your physical toolbox? I guess I do, and it's you might view it as cheating a little bit to the to to answering the question, but it's health literacy. It's my health literacy. Yeah, yeah. Is no, my I shouldn't have said, I shouldn't have said. No, 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 it's I okay. Out of the I, I, feel, I view it as a physical tool because it's coming from up here. Yeah, from your um, it's the <laughs> It's the opportunity and privilege I've had to gather health literacy and then use it for my own disease. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, health literacy, how do you define that for people who might not know? Right. So health literacy isn't about... Uh, at what reading level you read, right? Or what what level of schooling you completed. You can be a postdoctoral person 
and still make really bad decisions about your health. You and I see that every day, Cheryl, regrettably. Yep, yep. So literacy is about, let's think of it as book learning, right? Yeah. Health literacy is about being presented with a set of choices, sort of pros and cons, information, being able to sort out what the pros and cons would be for you of taking one decision over another and then making a decision. It's understanding how to balance evidence, so information, and saying, well, given what I know about myself and my circumstances and my my finances and my living situation and my emotional wellness, uh, this is the best decision for me right now. Mm-hmm. And then seeing a better outcome there than you might if you'd chosen another uh, option. So that's really... Yeah what health literacy is distilled down into a very simple uh, definition. No, that that's really helpful. I just, yeah. I want to make sure in case people are like, no, it's a good point. Ability to read a scientific journal article versus like, like it's the applied health literacy. It's applied knowledge. It's applied yes. knowledge. Yeah. To the complex art of decision-making. And I yeah. find, yeah, I think if I was ever to go back and get like a PhD or something, it would be in um, like health promotion and health, you know, health decision-making, because it is really, um, you know, we're not, we're, as Dana Riley says, we are predictably irrational. Yeah. You know, we're not rational humans. So well, how- I've, I've learned a lot about health literacy actually from uh, our intern, uh, Ellen Wang, who is doing oh. her PhD on health literacy oh. with Linda <laughs> Lee, whom you know well. Yes. Uh, oh my God. Our program manager and man, oh man, is she taught us a ton and we look forward to learning more from her while she's with us. Oh. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Do you have a favorite book or movie or TV show you have watched or read recently? Uh, well, uh, I'm a sports fanatic, so I'm not going to tell you that last night's game uh, with the Dallas Mavericks and the Denver Nuggets was great, okay. but I am okay. going to tell you this. I just recently watched a movie called Stutes by Jonah Hill. What is it called? Stutes, S-T-U-T-Z or Z. Oh, oh, it's this about his therapist? Yes. Okay, okay. It is a must watch for anyone living with chronic disease. Okay. Oh, I can't wait. It is. I was blown away. I've had, uh, I've benefited from counseling in the past. In oh, my I life. was going to ask about that. So I'm glad you're yeah. here. Yeah. It, so it's not, it's really the movie. He set out to make a movie about Philip Stutes, his the therapist. Okay. And in the process, it became it became clear to both of them that they couldn't do that without actually talking about their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And then through that discussion, um, Dr. Stutes has created uh, an incredible toolkit. I'm not a big fan of that term, but literally. He makes okay. drawings for his patients. I'm a very visual person. My therapist does too. Showing uh, Jonah, showing what tools he develops with his patients. And it's, a, it's about seven or eight tools uh, that he uses and talks about. So you walk away from 90 minutes and you've got tools wow. to use in your chronic disease journey. I recommend it to everyone. It's on Netflix. Uh, uh, Stutes, S-T-U-T-Z or Z by Jonah Hill. Watch it. Wow. Oh, I'm so excited. I love him. Yeah. Okay. 
And then do you have a favorite mantra or inspirational saying? It's okay if you don't. <laughs> I have quite a number. Okay. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give two uh, because they go together. Um, power and share. And power sharing between and for fellow uh, people living with arthritis is to me everything. Yeah, yeah. Personal power, organizational power, volunteer power, paid power, political power. It's yeah. power is nothing unless you share it. So power, share, power sharing. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And what's something that's bringing, there's two more questions if you yeah. have time. What's yep. something bringing you joy right now? Well, uh, right now, today, every day for the last 10 years is my dog. I was thinking you're going to say that. Yeah. Molly, the magnificent, uh, she's a labradoodle. She's just, she saved my life, Cheryl, oh. in so many ways. She saved my life. She is a therapy dog and she's just the best little creature put on this planet, in my biased opinion. Yeah, no, that's how yeah. I feel about mine. Actually, I will just very quickly say for those watching on um, YouTube, sorry to make it about me again, but That's okay. um, you might notice my cat Wally has made frequent appearances. Yes, I've seen the, the shadows. Yeah, his little tail, but unfortunately he developed a tumor and passed away very quickly um, just over a week ago. So it's okay. He was, you know, he was with us for 12 years. So oh, that was your dog in the background. Our, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry. Our cat. So my dog, oh. my dog is here today. Where is he? Oh, I'll go get it. No, that's who I've been seeing in the background. Oh, he, yeah, the dog yeah. is in there sometimes. But for the podcast, more frequently, I have the cat kind uh, of okay. crawling around. He loves, ever since he was a kitten, he loved to um, sit on the back of my chair. Like, he's my he's my posture I'm so buddy. I'm sorry. Um, but no, th thank you. I'm just sharing in case people are like, where's Your the cat? Your energy is still with us, Cheryl. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. and it's been really fun um, walking down memory lane with my husband because we got him two years after we started dating when we oh. moved in together. So it's been really fun to kind of look back at the old pictures and, and all that. So, um, but so you won't be seeing Wally anymore, but you can go look back and see his old and his sister Eva is still with us. So we have Wally and Eva from the movie, oh, you know, the movie. So Wally, nice. but, um, what's your dot? What's your Labradoodle's name? Molly, Molly. Molly. Oh. Actually Molly Duker, a uh, funny story, quick. Um, we were at a team holiday lunch okay. 10 years ago oh. and I was really wondering, cause I travel a lot for my work mm. and, and I just thought, well, it's too cruel to bring it. So I had to figure out this, you know, how would I make a life for this beautiful creature yeah. if I brought uh, my, a dog home with right, me? Right, right, right. And I finally sort of just it's just basically taking the plunge because you figure it out. You yeah, have to yes, figure it yes, out yes. to take excellent care of them. So we were sitting around the table at the restaurant and they said, so you're going to do it. And they, yeah, and we're, let's come up with names. And it was a holiday lunch and we had ordered a bottle of wine. Okay. Uh, doesn't happen often. Trust me. And <laughs> the name of the wine um, uh, is, uh, is Australian. Okay. And it's a Shiraz and the name of the wine is Molly Duker. Oh, wow. And Molly was in my head anyway. So okay. her name is Molly Duker Cohen. And that's how she got her. She's named after a brilliant uh, Australian Shiraz. 
That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. And then last question, what does it mean to you to live a good life and thrive with rheumatic disease? Um, I have this principle, Cheryl, that love is all there is in life. And it, it, love, I just, if you have love, can find love, can love yourself. You have all the love in the world in you. And understanding mm -hmm. that for me has been a, a journey. And um, I love myself. Uh, some days I'm the only one that loves me. And that's okay well, because I love and Molly. Me, I'm right? sure Molly. Yeah, Molly always loves me. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that to me is, is the secret to my life. Uh, good life, bad life. Some days aren't great. But I genuinely love myself. And as a result, I'm genuinely a happy person, even mm -hmm. with a shitty romantic disease. Pardon my language. Right, but, right. Um, you know, it just makes everything uh, better. Yeah. Love yeah. at the center. So that that's that's how I live my life. I live it in love and I and I have fun and I just am a happy camper most of the time. That's that's amazing. And I love I, this reminded me, you reminded me of your bio, which you sent me, your speaker bio. And usually with someone as accomplished as yourself, it would be something like she has, you know, she helmed the first yeah. of this and nobody cares about that. I know. Well, you, yeah, that's, it's irrelevant that's, to me, frankly. No, so, that's yeah. what I love. And you wrote, you know, um, I love life, even with rheumatoid arthritis, like that is fundamental to who you are. And that's like, that is that resonated with me. Cause that's something I really, that word with is something that I really focus on in like my room to thrive groups. And, yep. you know, I say you can, you need to think of it or not, you need to, but you know, I think of it as I'm happy. I am living with rheumatoid arthritis and I can do great things and have a meaningful yeah. life with it as opposed to you're fighting it. It's something you're, it's you against arthritis. It's you know? reframing, right? It's the yes. art of reframing. Yeah, and I it's a, uh, it's a reframing is one of the best tools that we have in chronic disease because it takes something that is not overly regarded as being great rheumatoid arthritis, for example, mm -hmm. and, and saying, yeah, okay, it's there. And yes, it hurts. And yes, I have to tend and water, water it and feed it and whatever, yeah. but it's not who I am. And, and I think if, when you get to that point and it's the journey, Cheryl, as you all know, yeah. it, it consumes you in the early days, but it does change your relationship with your disease changes over time for the better. And you learn mm -hmm. to make it background noise, not a set of drums. It's oh not, it's not the drum beat in your life. It's just humming in the back. Yep. I love, I love that. Yeah. We both are like very metaphorical thinkers. I, I live by metaphors, which yeah. my team kills me for. They just no. can't stand them, but. Oh no. Well, what's yeah. funny, I, the, even in my undergrad at my liberal, liberal arts college, we, um, had, I took a linguistics, anthropology, linguistics class, yeah. and they actually had a book there called metaphors we live by and yep. that was that that title just stood out to me because I was like yeah we live by you know by metaphors and and um so anyway I just really really appreciate we've been this is a long time coming I've wanted to talk to you forever so ditto um, ditto I've been it's been a long time coming wanting to come on the program 
Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm so happy that you're, that you've shared your wisdom. I just, this is definitely going to be an episode I come back to. I don't, I don't always like listen to episodes repeatedly because I'm like, um, you know, you get tired of hearing the sound of your own voice, to be honest. Um, but, <laughs> but um, no, I just, I feel like I just, I, I know that everyone who's listening has resonated with at least five of, of your <laughs> tips of wisdom. So thank you so much. And if you haven't, um, I'm sorry. No, Thank no money back here. It's a free podcast. So. It's always a joy to, to listen to you and then to see and listen to you and interact with you, Cheryl. I so admire what you're doing and oh. I wish you the very best over the holidays. Oh, and oh my gosh. Thank you. You too. All okay. right. Bye-bye for now. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.